Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today marks the one-year anniversary since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. We look back on what we as a society and the science community have learned, what's worked, what hasn't worked. It's all coming up on the program. Stats Canada has released a one-year update on the social and economic impacts of COVID-19 pandemic at both the national and provincial levels. Guy Gelatly from Stats Canada is going to join us and talk about those numbers. And some Ontarians aged 60 to 64 are going to be able to get their COVID vaccine as early as this weekend at their doctor's office. Details to follow. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canadians are marking a national day of observance of the one-year anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring the spread of COVID-19 a global pandemic. Terry Pedwell has details. More than two and a half million people around the globe have died from COVID-19, more than 22,000 of them in Canada. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says at this one-year mark, it is fitting to remember lives lost and to reflect on the past 12 months. They have been taken from us, but they will not be forgotten. Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, says Canadians should also reflect on what has been accomplished since last March, namely the near-miraculous development of vaccines against the virus in such a short time. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. So much to unpack about this, and uh, we're going to try to do that over the next uh, little while here. And, uh, to start us off, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Zane Shagla, Infectious Disease Specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and an Associate Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Medicine at McMaster. Doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. No problem. Always a pleasure. Let's look back at where we were 12 months ago to where we are now. I think I mentioned to my listeners a little while ago, I watched an old rerun of the Colbert show, the late night show, of course, on CBS, just around this time. And it was the first night he was broadcasting from home. And he says, this is ridiculous. He says, this could go on for three or four weeks, they're saying. Well, here we are a year later, and I'm, I'm still at home, and most of us who are working from home are getting a little tired of this, but we understand the severity of it right now. Were we naive, in hindsight, about, about pandemics and infectious diseases, that it was always something that happened someplace else, not in North America? Yeah, I mean, it's a good thought, right? And you're, you're absolutely right. Like, we, we deal with epidemics in other places of the world, right? You know, the, in many of the, the low- and middle-income countries, you know, we, I remember around March 11th last year, the two months before that, planning for an Ebola case that would come from the, the Democratic Republic of Congo to, uh, to the Hamilton area. And, and that was our big thing on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and us kind of, you know, saying this is a really unforeseen scenario. So, yeah, I mean, we were caught off guard. And I think the big piece of this this epidemic that really changed the way the timelines and everything we we dealt with it was the fact that there was a pre-symptomatic period to this where people could transmit this disease without being symptomatic. And uh, and that essentially took it from something that could be controllable with public health measures, contact tracing, isolation, to something that's probably not as controllable as we think and, and the reason why we're sitting here today. But it didn't creep up upon us, did it? I mean, I, I've talked to public health experts and, and folks in your fields for the last couple of years who talked to us about the potential for this. I mean, you, you could see this happening because it was happening in other places. And, and there's some other factors here that are going to come into play that we're going to talk about in just a bit. Because uh, you, you can't talk about this stuff in isolation. There's so, so many other things like climate change and everything that have mm-hmm. an impact on how this spreads. But But we... I, I think we had this mindset that, hey, this is North America. Come on. You know, that, that might happen in the Congo, and it might happen in third world countries. But come on, here, we've got a great healthcare system. You know, everything's going to be fine here. We, we weren't ready. 
No, I mean, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think we've all we've always worried about something like pandemic influenza, but I think we've always been reassured in that sense that we had a vaccine, we have treatments for influenza, you know, that it wouldn't be as bad as we would think and, and, and that type of thing. And I think the big thing, we underestimated what such disruption to, to global supply chains, to, to the ability to respond, the ability to innovate, the ability to get personal protective equipment, what that meant for the world, right? And I think that was a, a big, big problem in March and April in terms of not only could we respond, but everyone in the world is trying to respond and it's impairing our ability to practice and have supplies and, and all the things we needed to respond. Well, and there's a political end of this too, which I, I don't want to go too deeply into with you, but I mean, you know, there were warnings after SARS and everything, and there were actually uh, a number of recommendations about things like ventilators and things like that. And, and subsequent governments just kind of said, oh, come on, that's not really going to happen. That was an isolated incident. And, and we got caught with that. But I, I want to spend just a couple of minutes, because when I talk to scientists like yourself, uh, we well, let's just say you can't look at this in isolation. Climate change is a factor in this. Uh, deforestation is a factor in this. Uh, the fact that we're getting closer and closer uh, to where these things would start traditionally, uh, you know, because we're we're basically, you know, deforesting the land. We're, we're, we're expanding as a population. The, the Earth's population is growing. It's This is kind of like a perfect storm that's occurring here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, that, that animal-human nexus is, is such a, a um, an incredibly important relationship. And again, as we're getting more into animal climates, we're getting more, you know, animals and humans co-interacting in areas where they didn't. You know, this is driven a lot of the most recent global pandemics. We, you know, the the original SARS virus was you know thought to be from civet cats in China. The HIV pandemic was thought to be again uh, a transfer from uh, a chimpanzees to human, probably from a, a bushmeat exposure. Um, you know, uh, H1N1 was from probably recombination event in swine. And, and again, we're seeing this over and over. Our, our relationship to the environment, particularly our relationship to the animals, um, uh, it, you know, has downstream effects on, on us. You know, there's evolution that happens in animals that can be rapidly transferred to humans. And again, we're seeing it in practice, what that can do to an entire society being brought down by it. Uh, I, I believe the uh, the scientific term for this is uh, zo- zoonotic diseases. Mm. Uh, maybe explain that to our listeners, because it, it, as you just explained, the closer we get to our animals, the closer or the more likelihood of, of us contracting some of the, the viruses that they may carry. Yeah, absolutely. So again, like, you know, there are barriers in place for us to not get these types of infections because of our, you know, traditional interactions with animals, which is, you know, typically herding. But as we're getting animals very close, as we're raising animals in very, very crowded conditions, you're seeing evolution, you're seeing mutation. And again, you see these species jumps from time to time. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, yeah, as we get more domesticated, as we get more animals that are very, very close to human environments, you're going to see these jumps over and over. A, you know, the stuff that naively is in animals, and, you know, you think coronavirus comes from bats, and, and realistically, bats carry a ton of different pathogens. But B, you know, viruses that can interact with human hosts, and, and so influenza is the one that we, we really worry about because humans carry influenza, birds carry influenza and all it takes is a third-party animal that can get one of each and combine them together to make a new species that could rip through humanity very quickly and so that is going to be a big part moving forward you know our relationship to animals and our surveillance of places that are in relationship to animals are going to be the ones that are going to be the the canary in the coal mine that something is going on 
There's another element to this, too, and that's climate change. And I know that's a discussion that some people feel very uncomfortable with, but it's a discussion we have to have. Uh, as the Earth does heat up, and it is heating up, by the way, people. I don't want to even start that debate now. Uh, some of those those species that you talked about, Doctor, that were the carriers or the spreaders of this, uh, that we'd always figure, well, that, that's down around the equator, those that, you know, in the hot spots down there. The, uh, but if, if everything else is getting hot, they gravitate northward. Uh, and we've seen that happen already with things like killer bees and other stuff like that, which, you know, Okay, that's that's a nice little story, but it's starting to happen, and the diseases that they carry are starting to gravitate northward too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw this, you know, in the, in the emergence of West Nile virus into the Hamilton area. You know, West mm-hmm. Nile virus. The name comes. It, it, it's a, a virus that was introduced in, uh, from from East Africa to uh, to the rest of the world and just marched north along the the western the eastern seaboard of the United States and eventually got as north as New York and eventually into the Ontario region. We're seeing Lyme disease move into, you know, pockets of uh, Ontario that were not there in, in a, a decade ago. And and so, you know, we're seeing this this march of, of infections, their carriers, their hosts, uh, you know, the ability for vectors like mosquitoes to live in more and more northern climates. Uh, and, and similarly, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to see the movement. Uh, and, and again, add to that, not only just the climate change being that you know, more places are going to get seeded, but as we saw in this pandemic, globalization and movement being such a big thing that, that animal vectors, other species can come in over, over large distances with something as short as a ship ride or a plane ride. So because of this, I, I, I don't mean to paint a totally bleak picture here, but I think we have to be realistic about this uh, since it's happening that. And here we are celebrating the one-year anniversary, and it's not as if it's in our rearview mirror. I mean, we're still dealing with this and the variances of, the, of this coronavirus. Uh, is it inevitable that there, there will be more of, of, of this coming forth in, in the not-too-distant future or the distant future? I mean, in the last 20 years, we've seen three pandemics of uh, SARS of H1N1 and of COVID-19. Um, you know, in the last 10 years, we've seen two in, in SARS and COVID-19. I'm sorry, in H1N1 and COVID-19. And so, you know, I think we are seeing this starting to pick up. And again, we have the right products. We have the climate change. We have the animal-human nexus. Uh, and we have such globalization and movement such that a novel pathogen can make it around the Earth in 24 hours in that sense, right? So, um yeah, I mean, I, unfortunately, I think our, our investments into pandemics and pandemic planning is going to be a big part of our future uh, and surveillance networks globally and us supporting places that can't do their own surveillance uh, is going to be as, as essential as ever to make sure that uh, we know what's happening well beforehand and we can plan for it. And we talk about, for instance, the debate with climate change, which has been going on for you know many generations, really now. Uh, and there were the deniers, and there probably still are. But you know, we talked about well, the East Coast flooding, and well, that's never going to happen. Well, you know, we've already seen sea levels start to rise in some areas like this because of glacial melting. But a public health crisis like this, doctor, was never uh, on anybody's radar. They didn't understand that this was an unintended consequence. That that as 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 what happens, as he just described, it starts to happen. We get closer to the animals that could be carriers of this, and those animals start to gravitate more to the north. I don't think anybody, aside from people in your field, uh, saw this coming, that there was an inevitability to this, that you know we were moving closer and closer to this. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think we talk about climate change as you talk about, like, you know, the, the environmental and, and uh, um, climate, you know, uh, complications of it. But, but again, the, the spread of infectious diseases is, 
intimately linked to uh, climate change and, and global conditions. And, and, you know, similarly, we've created the environments where this type of thing can happen again and again. Um, again, it's not necessarily going to be necessarily preventing the next outbreak from happening, which certainly is, is, is part of this, but it's also mitigating the next outbreak when it does happen because we've created conditions where, where this could happen over and over again. People like yourself, though, have done a remarkable job in studying infectious diseases. And let's let's pick influenza as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're pretty good right now at, at predicting which strains are going to be prevalent uh, from year to year, which is obviously how the vaccine is developed and decided, which we're, this is the one we're going to use. Uh, can we do the same thing with coronaviruses? Can we actually predict with some certainty that, that, that this may be the next wave? Yeah, I mean, I think the one nice thing about COVID as compared to influenza is that influenza has mechanisms within it, the way it recombines. And again, that pandemic event we talked about where an animal species uh, uh, is infected by a human species and a bird species, which essentially could lead to a mass you know, change that could lead to a pandemic. I think, you know, for coronavirus, we have some ability. Yes, there's been some mutation, but on the grand scale, it's well, well less than we expect with influenza and other viruses. We have vaccines and, and targets that are actually appropriate and develop really, really good immune responses. And I think the biggest thing that's come out of this pandemic is using platforms like mRNA and uh, and uh, vector viruses to deal with immunizations because those are rapidly changeable and adaptable platforms. And I think that's a huge advantage for us going forward, for us developing COVID vaccines to be able to catch up, to deal with variants is that we actually have the tools and the kit and the, the, the ability to essentially reverse engineer from what's on paper to a vaccine in a couple of months. So so I think there is some promise ahead for sure. Well, if if we're looking at takeaways of this last year, one of them obviously is we need to be more diligent about this and, and watch what's going on. But the fact that we developed a vaccine in such short order is, is just a remarkable story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, these mRNA vaccines and, and adenovirus vaccines were developed slowly over time but really we're sitting on the shelf waiting for something like this to happen no one knew if this would work i mean i think we we had small studies suggesting we used adenovirus based vaccines in, in ebola and they seem to be really really efficacious but to actually take them off the shelf reverse engineer use the platform go through clinical trials and see population-based effects and the fact that we're doing it again with variants right now, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and Moderna are all developing, you know, variant-based platforms. It's huge. Like, I, no, no time in history have we ever been able to develop a vaccine in a pandemic to modify the pandemic. The first influenza vaccine was 30 years after the 1918 influenza crisis. Um, and so, you know, again, this is this is changing the face of history in terms of our ability to respond with vaccinology as part of an infectious disease response. Well, and with, we have a role to play here, too, as the public, uh, because, as you say, we didn't start from ground zero when we were developing this. There was a lot of work that had been done previously to this. Uh, but that takes research, that takes money, and that takes government sponsorship. I mean, the government's got to understand uh, that they we're, in, we're in this for the long haul, and, and we need to keep that research going uh, so that we are ready, willing, and able, and even if we have to pivot a little bit. But, I mean, the work has to be done. We can't wait for the next one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, platforms like this, again, they were, they were work and development. And, and again, there were 
they were cancer, there was working cancer that was done with mRNA technology that translated over to this, right? So it can't just be infectious disease investment, it's molecular biology, it's other disease investments, it's this type of crosstalk is really what pollinates this type of thing. And again, research funding for Canadian innovators, global innovators is going to be so important moving forward for us to have tools on the shelf well beforehand. Absolutely. Well, that was the message of my commentary at 810 this morning, and hopefully the, the governments are listening to this one as well. Uh, Doctor, I look forward to the day when we can actually have a face-to-face discussion about some of this stuff. But uh, in the meantime, uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Of course. Looking forward to it. Take care. Dr. Zane Shagla, of course, uh, from uh, St. Joe's Hospital at Hamilton and McMaster University Department of Medicine. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. My friends at Stats Canada have done some breakdowns of some of the numbers here to give us an indication about just what kind of an impact this uh, coronavirus has had on this. And uh, insights into things like this, not just the social and economic impacts, but a number of other things, too, that are inclusive in this, uh, as they usually are with the great work that Stats Canada does. Uh, Guy Jalakli is with us. He's a principal researcher with Stats Canada. Uh, Guy, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Bill, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. A lot to sift through here, Guy, as always with your reporting on, on uh, what we're going through here and to make some sense of some of these numbers. Uh, and, and maybe we could start off with there's a phrase here that comes up in, in, the, in the data here an awful lot called excessive deaths, excessive mortality. Maybe explain that to our listeners. Yeah, basically, uh, Bill, that's the idea that, um, you know, it's the, it's the number of deaths above and beyond what you would typically expect to observe kind of over a particular period. So the number noted in the report is about uh, 12,000, sort of above and beyond what you would expect, you know, over that, uh, you know, that first stretch of the pandemic. Well, it's interesting uh, because I know that some of the deniers, and they're going back a few months, I guess, when we first started talking about this, uh, they were saying, you know, what's the big deal here? You know, I don't know anybody that's got it. And with the same amount of people are dying as usual, uh, your numbers say that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I, uh, it certainly looks like that. Uh, obviously, there's a, there's been a substantial impact there. And what the report does is it also looks at both the, um, you know, the kind of the direct impacts, you know, the number of people uh, obviously dying from, from COVID-19, but the, the indirect as well, you know, some of the impacts on, on mental health and all of the additional challenges that, uh, that many people are, you know, are bearing, you know, over this period. Well, and let's talk about some of those because, you know, whether you're going to use phrases like collateral damage or what, uh, oftentimes the stats that we get on a daily basis of, from province and, and provincial and federal governments, rather, uh, will tell a story about what's going on. And, and those are people that may have died in institutions, whether it's long-term care facilities uh, or, or, of course, uh, could be in hospitals, uh, but deaths that are reported through the public health offices. Uh, but you guys went one step further on this and talked about, uh, you know, some of the extraneous elements to this, too. And uh, because there's a lot going on here that's impacted us in so many different ways. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this brings it all together in terms of, uh, obviously, a health crisis. And there's different dimensions to that health crisis in terms of, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the virus itself and then and the mental health challenges. Um, and uh, obviously, the uh, the social and economic, you know, this is one of these situations where you, you can't separate these. Uh, you have to kind of look at them all together to get the, you know, the full impact of this on uh, on how it's changed our our social lives and our economic lives. There's a, a, a general assumption that this is a, a, a disease, a pandemic that had the, the most significant impact on, on seniors, on plus 65s, and it certainly did when you look at mortality rates. Uh, but you guys went beyond that to some other demographic uh, areas to talk about the impact that they have, and uh, especially in younger people, but even in young adults. Uh, there's a significant impact here, not necessarily deaths, uh, but impact on people's lives. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
young Canadians, that's actually a pretty good example to go to because, uh, you know, uh, Bill, if you look at under the total uh, job losses since uh, basically since the pandemic started all the way up till January, you know, uh, about 45% of those are basically coming from young Canadians, you know, the, the 15 to 24-year-olds. So there's been a huge impact there on, on, on young people. And then obviously the impact is, you know, you're concentrated in accommodation and foods and in retail, you know, places where there's herbs, industries where there's large numbers of young people. But, uh, you know, the mental health numbers on young people are pretty striking as well. Uh, I mean, uh, they dropped about 20 percentage points. So if you ask young people before the pandemic, you know, how many are, uh, how, uh, are, are doing well or extremely well, uh, it's about 60%, and uh, and that dropped down to about 40%, you know, during the initial lockdowns, or just in the wake of those lockdowns. So that's a pretty severe movement in those numbers. Um, and, of course, there was some rebound uh, as you uh, as the restrictions eased and as kind of life resumed uh, with a little bit more normalcy. Uh, but then when you hit November again, uh, you know, those numbers dropped back down, you know, as things tightened up. So, you know, they do have, there's a real swing here in terms of the those uh, those, uh, those social impacts that sort of tell the underlying story of kind of what's happening in the labor market. Well, I remember, and it was, uh, I guess it was in the early spring when uh, the Prime Minister, was, I guess he is still doing his daily briefings, but uh, uh, he talked about money for, for Kids Helpline and for those sorts of uh, 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 necessary i think very necessary things that we're offering these days and people say well really really but the the mental impact and the mental stress that that's caused by this by job loss by any number of other different things not just the illness itself but things caused by the illness they have been significant and we've seen uh, in some of your past reporting on this guy some some real spikes in numbers of well sadly of suicides but also of people that are seeking help i, I think the number of calls to places like the kids helpline have more than quadrupled i think in the last uh, seven or eight months yeah, no, again, you're seeing sort of a uh, kind of an increase in a lot of those uh, those sort of predictors, uh, you know, things that you, you'd have to keep close tabs on on the social side. If you looked at, uh, for example, uh, increases in, in kind of reports to the or calls to the police, let's say, you know, for service calls to the police, they were up about 8% from where they were prior to the pandemic. So, you know, there's a lot of strain, and I think we all understand that pretty intimately now. On, on kind of um, certainly across the board, but in particular on uh, on more vulnerable groups, particularly those at the front lines of the pandemic. How did it break down by gender, male to female? Uh, well, you know, it, it, it's a difficult thing to separate out. I mean, there's always a lot of discussion of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the point that I would make right up front, Bill, is that it's had a, you know, it's a pretty devastating impact on both men and, and women. Uh, you can't lose sight of that. Um, if you look at kind of the, the big changes in the, uh, in the employment numbers, you know, through much of that run, um, it, it's pretty equal in terms of those losses. You see them both in men and, and women. Um, and, of course, young men and women in particular are, are, are particularly impacted. Um, if you look at sort of the second stretch of lockdowns, let's say November to January, um, again, it was a kind of a largely a young people story. Um, but... Um, you know, women were perhaps a bit more impacted there because of the, you know, the accommodation and food uh, being a bit more heavily uh, affected. So, again, you know, it's it's a tough one uh, because there's lots of sort of competing perspectives on this. But I would I would have to point out that, you know, at the end of the day, um, they're both kind of obviously facing enormous challenges here.
Yeah, the numbers. I know that uh, there's been a, a great deal of study done about the impact it's had on women, especially in the workforce. And, uh, you know, we've mm-hmm. actually dubbed it the C-session because some women were so adversely affected by this. But uh, you're right. I mean, we can't forget that there were other people involved in this, too. Another one that jumped out at me here, the, the, you talked to go back for a second to uh, excessive deaths, uh, more excess deaths. Uh, men under the age of 45, uh, significant number there. Yeah, again, again, sort of the younger people. Uh, being kind of a uh, kind of a, a major factor, and of course, there's different dimensions to, to this. There's uh, there's uh, like you say, the impact of the uh, of the virus directly, and then there's all of the other kind of mental health challenges and the uh, yeah the um, uh, you know the uh, you were talking about the um, you know some of the uh, the challenges facing addiction and uh, and just you know the coping that's that's being done or not being done in particular segments of the population. It's it's a very very difficult time. Uh, so when you look at those, you have to kind of have, take a more of a fulsome approach uh, to, to, to measuring how it's impacting a particular group. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, we, we start looking for comfort zones. And, and you've in past studies, Guy, you've shown us that the numbers over the last 12 months, uh, you know, the, the use of alcohol is, is spiked significantly in, in many demographics, but it, even in that younger demographic that you talked about. Uh, we just had some stats in a report, I guess it was on Tuesday of this week, uh, that indicated that cannabis use is up considerably during the pandemic as well. Uh, and, and again, you know, it's it's overuse, I guess, is, is really what we're looking at here. And, and we haven't even been able to quantify, I guess, the long-term impacts of that, have we? No, and, and that's really it. I mean, the long-term is, uh, you know, there's so much debate out there, Bill, about how much of this is sort of temporary and how much is going to be uh, become permanent or, or structural. And, uh, and, you know, lots of talk on the economy there in terms of uh, uh, kind of how the work world is changing and what that's going to mean for people's well-being. Uh, you know, you look at the uh, the January labor force report, and 5.4 million Canadians are are working from home. That's actually higher than it was during the lockdowns in April, when it was 5.1 million. But uh, you know, that's obviously a very different world than we were we in a little over a year ago, and uh, and kind of the impact on uh, on on work life and uh, and uh, and our sort of our social lives and our, our mental well being. Uh, that's something that's going to be looked at for from many years to come i suspect and i know there's going to be a debate about about methodology on this because uh, we're talking about things like substance abuse and, and the impact that's going to have on physical and mental health and and the, some of those that are say well you know can you really tie that to the pandemic i think there's a pretty strong argument that you can uh, you mentioned another category here that uh, we've only had a brief discussion about but it's, i think it's a very important one uh, delayed medical procedures i mean remember yeah. a number of surgeries and, and and medical procedures were canceled or postponed anyway uh, last spring because of the spikes that we saw with the pandemic numbers uh, and and some of those are, are life in that situations I mean we had somebody on from the uh, cancer assistance program yesterday that was talking about that very thing that uh, because some people are simply afraid to go out where there are other people these days a lot of the treatment that is very necessary for some of the, the physical problems they're dealing with right now were skipped and and that can have long-term consequences oh very much so and there was some modeling done as, as part of this uh uh, as part of the report to us uh, and understand what the impacts there may be sort of going forward. Um, and, you know, they are uh, potentially substantial when you look at, uh, the, you know, missed or, or delayed uh, medical interventions, right? Um, and we all understand how, how difficult it, it was to, uh, uh, you know, to, to seek out medical care, you know, during obviously a time when we're, uh, when we're at home and, uh, and, and facing lockdowns. But, uh, you know, over time, those those numbers, uh, you know, have certainly uh, 
uh, uh, begun to build. And uh, that's something that's going to be watched going forward, certainly. As you look at the data here, there's a couple of stories, I mean, to extrapolate from this, because uh, I know you've done past studies about economic recovery as well, and and, uh, and it seems to indicate that, yeah, we really took a hit, uh, but they, it's already starting to, to show signs of recovery, and there's a, a, a theory that seems to be predominant right now that there's a bounce-back economy, that, you know, as soon as the doors open again, we're going to rush back there, we'll, we'll go to restaurants, we'll start buying things again, and time will tell whether or not that happens. But this report here, Guy, uh, indicates that even if that does happen and we bounce back from an economic standpoint, uh, we're banged and bruised as individuals, and it's going to take us a while to get over this. So that's exactly it, and that's the the idea of kind of bringing the economic data and then confronting it with a lot of the uh, kind of the emerging numbers on the social side and on the health side. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're you know down about three percent from where we started in terms of the uh, in terms of economic output. So we've kind of clawed our way back. Uh, to a to a very real extent, but you know you're still looking uh, at uh, you know as of January, you know uh, kind of 1.3 million uh, workers being affected either through job losses still or just substantial reductions in the amount of work that they're doing. So you know this stuff uh, uh, is highly concentrated in particular segments of the labor force, uh, low wage workers, mm-hmm. uh, and again I mentioned. Uh, uh, a lot of the younger workers, uh, you know, and that's going to create some some real challenges uh, going forward. And uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation on on the resiliency and on the adaptiveness, and uh, and how quickly uh, can people can adjust to uh, to this new normal. Um, you know, I think a lot were uh, were surprised at the extent of the uh, of the economic rebound. You know, in in June and July, once things opened up again. You know, a lot of industries, retail, best example, kind of fired right back up. But uh, uh, but again, and, and, and industries and firms have done a great deal to kind of get things up and moving again. But going forward, you're going to have these sort of structural areas that are going to present real challenges. Uh, that, uh, and that's an open question at this stage as to, uh, as to how uh, they're going to adapt going forward. Guy, it's always great to get uh, the, the the data and the hard numbers because they tell a story in and of itself, and 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 we can get some some I think some very important information about how this is impacting us, and uh, both from an economic and of course from an individual standpoint. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you so much for the great work that you do, and thanks for the time today. Thank you, Bill, and I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Take care. I know we'll talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some good news about the vaccine rollout. There have been a couple of different wrinkles now to what's going to be happening here in Ontario. Family doctors in Hamilton and other municipalities uh, are going to start administering the COVID-19 vaccine this weekend. There's some qualifiers here. Uh, it's for people aged 60 to 64. Global's Brianna Carnegie has some of those details. Over 325 pharmacies offering the AstraZeneca shot are now listed on the Ontario government's website. You can search by area code to find the nearest location to you. To get these vaccines administered as quickly as possible, more members of Team Ontario are stepping up. Premier Doug Ford also announced primary care professionals will begin offering the AstraZeneca shot as of Saturday in six public health units, including Toronto, Peel, Hamilton and Simcoe, Muskoka. But to avoid overwhelming the system, officials urge eligible Ontarians to book only one appointment and for everyone else to stay off the website. Once you book an appointment, you will not be able to book a second. What you're doing is just taking away from someone that's very vulnerable. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. 
Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there, too. I think we carried the story the other day here about some people that are actually getting phone calls uh, saying for a price you can move to the front of the line. Uh, the vaccine's free. You shouldn't be paying for it. That's a scam. But we need to educate people about what's going to be happening as this goes forward. Uh, but it's encouraging to see that some of the stuff is going to be given up by family docs so soon uh, to that, that demographic that we just talked about. But also that pharmacies are going to be involved in this. And this is, uh, I think, a key uh, to the dissemination of the vaccine. Uh, to give us some details on how this is going to roll out and what's it going to look like, uh, Justin Bates joins us. Justin is the CEO for the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Uh, Justin, welcome back to the show. Good to have you on the show today. Good morning. It's great to be here. Let's, let's talk about uh, the pharmacies' uh, role in this whole situation. I mean, we've seen the clinics that have been set up, and they, they've been effective. People that have, you know, have made appointments, been called, and I know the system is running very efficiently. Uh, but I think an awful lot of us were waiting to see how the pharmacies were going to get involved in this. Uh, access to the vaccine, of course, was something that was holding us all up. But talk to us about how this is going to look going forward. I know it's only in, in a limited part of the province right now, I guess on sort of a trial basis. But what's it going to look like, and what do you think it's going to lead to? Yeah, I really want to emphasize the milestone that this is to accelerate the vaccination plans and provide Ontario residents more access and convenience to the vaccine. And that's, you know, what our collective goals are. Um, we are starting in a limited fashion because of the supply that's coming in with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it does have uh, not only a limited number of doses, but an expiration date of April 2nd. So that meant we had to mobilize very quickly uh, to put this pilot together and ensure that we had the right number of stores participating so that we could get through that vaccine uh, between now and end of the month. So, uh, you know, I think we're ready. Uh, this is an opportunity to make sure that um, patients have choice, and uh, whether that's through their family health uh, doctor or the mass immunization clinics and now pharmacies. And we need to get all pharmacies on board when supply dictates. Was, was there any science behind uh, which jurisdictions were going to do this, first of all? It's a great question because I know people are asking, uh, why not this region and why <laughs> oh, yeah. those regions? And, and yeah, yeah, and and it's understandable. What about me? Everybody's got this. Ex- yeah, yeah. Everyone's got this excited anxiousness about getting the vaccine, and and that's certainly something that we all appreciate because this is our our light at the end of the tunnel to get out of this pandemic and get that so uh, coveted uh, herd immunity so that we can keep our economy open and and of course protect public health. But, um, you know, it's not a simple answer because a lot of the decentralized plans and the vaccination plans that the PHUs were doing um, worked very well for uh, the public health units and and doing those mass humanization clinics. But for pharmacy, we wanted to roll up the planning and integrate some of the plans that were underway to do pilots um, locally and make sure we have a coordinated strategy that makes sense um, in terms of distribution, logistics, and, and allocation to pharmacy. And we really wanted to mirror what we do in the flu season, where we have over 3,200 pharmacies who participate and give that access uh, for the flu vaccine. So working with the Ministry of Health, we rolled up that process. Um, and those are the three uh, public health units that had already been quite advanced in their outreach to pharmacies, planning around um, leveraging pharmacies for a pilot. So they uh, hit the ground running, uh, and that was part of the rationale. But it's always been our shared goal with government to quickly scale up, expand to the other regions once supply uh, is replenished, and and I'm very confident we'll do that. 
Yeah, your point's well taken. Toronto's been talking about doing this for quite a long time right now. And just They were waiting for product, and of course now that it's available. Uh, and Windsor-Essex and Kingston, by the way, are the other jurisdictions that are going to be in phase one of this. Uh, a couple of things that we need to talk about, about uh, the, the, the program itself. Uh, as you mentioned, this is the AstraZeneca vaccine that's being out here, and there's an expiration concern here that it's only got a few more weeks of, of efficacy according to the studies that are done. Uh, the, there is a specific demographic here that we're talking about uh, for the the pharmaceutical rollout here, Justin, and it's age 60 to 64. Uh, is, is that based on some of the concerns that were raised with the 65-plus people that have already had the vaccine? Well, it's based on the NACI, which is the National Advisory Council on Immunization yeah. uh, Guidelines. And one of the things that we're seeing is this is very fluid with real-world evidence and data that's coming in uh, internationally on the use of the AstraZeneca and other vaccines. And, and we're starting to see that this is actually a very effective and safe vaccine for those over 65 as well. But the initial guidelines uh, meant that if we were going to uh, utilize the AstraZeneca vaccine once it was approved a couple weeks ago, that we did need to uh, mobilize quickly and, and adhere to those guidelines. So we started with the priority population um, of under 65 at the 60 to 64 cohort um, for those reasons. But I, I can see this evolving, uh, the criteria eligibility as uh, we learn more about the vaccine. Well, exactly. And, and it, it, for those people that are concerned about this, I mean, those that are doing this are erring on the side of caution because uh, there were some concerns raised. We just had a story this morning about somebody who uh, developed a number of blood clots and died, a 37-year-old or something like that. Uh, but this happened during the trials, if you recall, Justin, didn't it? I think it was the Pfizer trials where they thought they were close to the finish line and they said, nope, we got to put out because there were somebody had an adverse reaction in, in, in one of their test groups. Turned out to be non-related, uh, as this may well be too. I mean, they're investigating this right now and and but a number of jurisdictions i know over in the uk and other places that have used this vaccine very effectively for all demographics and have had uh, little to no negative results as a result of this so it's 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 nothing i don't think for people to be worried about but to, to i guess target this demographic right now for a vaccine that you have to get out in the next couple of weeks i think is probably the best strategy at this stage yeah, I mean, the key is you, you get the vaccine that's available. They are all 100% effective when it comes to preventing death and serious illness. So when you hear about the efficacy and the different percentages, it also has to do with the different uh, clinical trials and, and data that came back, and it's evolving uh, even uh, as we speak. And you saw that even with Pfizer and Moderna. There was uh, an increase in the efficacy um, rate. But that, that 94 or 62 or 82% is actually on getting any symptoms. But at that hundred, all four, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and the two, Pfizer and Moderna, all have 100% of effic efficacy on preventing serious illness and, and death. And that's really the key, right? So, um, you know, I don't think people should be worried about which vaccine um, they get. I think the key is get it as soon as you can. And let's try to open this up so that we get to a place where everybody in the general population has access to it once we work through the priority populations. Well, because there's some concern about that, and I think it's a very real concern that I've talked to some people in the medical profession and in your profession uh, that, that they've actually had some inquiries from people, some customers, potential customers that are vaccine shopping. Like, hey, let me know when the J&J &J vaccine gets out. And, and that's not the message you want to get out here, is it? Not at all. And we don't know when the J&J &J vaccine will actually arrive into the country. There's been some delays, manufacturing delays and so forth. So it's still some time away. 
Um, I mean, the J&J brings some advantages of having a single dose, but in terms of the efficacy and the safety, they're pretty much at par with AstraZeneca at this stage. So um, getting the AstraZeneca vaccine is important. Um, and as we look at the various channels, whether that's through public health, primary care or pharmacy, there will be options, certainly. Um, but the key is for, for everyone to understand that uh, now is the time to get it if you can. Yeah, and, and that's uh, I had consultation. I had a discussion with my family physician about this too. And the, the message here is pretty clear: just get the vaccine. You know, don't wait for one over the other. They're all very, very effective. Uh, and and the goal here is to get as many people vaccinated as soon as possible. Uh, whether it's going to be Moderna, whether it's going to be Pfizer, whether it's going to be this one or J and J somewhere down the road. And there may be more that, that are going to come along too. And as we go down the road in in the future here, but the the time is now. Uh, we've got to take advantage of what we've got, and and that's the best advice I think everybody's going to get at this stage. Absolutely. And, and this is a good uh, thing that's happening, uh, getting more shots in arms, um, working through all of the groups uh, and prioritizing. And, and obviously, we need to stick uh, with that plan and make sure it's equitable. Um, and equity is something that a lot of people are talking about. We want to avoid queue jumping and all of the things that undermine confidence. And I think that having these healthcare providers do the screening and assessment all the education, addressing vaccine hesitancy, and and even educating on the differences between the vaccines is going to play a critical role. How are your members going to uh, handle this now? What's what's the protocol going to be? Do they they still have to call to make an appointment? They do. There's going to be a couple of mechanisms. The best way to go about... getting a, an appointment with one of the participating pharmacies and there's over 325 that uh, are listed on the government website so it's uh, you know ontario.ca and then it's I think it's slash uh, COVID-19 vaccine but there's a list there that you can then go to each of the websites of your pharmacy uh, of choice so choose one that's close to you uh, go to their website because each pharmacy will have a different uh, process many use a booking system so you can book right on their website Some of them have mobile apps now um, that make it even more convenient. And then uh, I would say as a last resort, call in because uh, it is challenging with the demand um, to uh, get a hold of somebody as the phones are going, um, you know, quite chaotic right now. But um, most of the pharmacies, if not all that are participating, have a booking system that you can use. uh, And uh, it's pretty seamless and uh, I would say pretty intuitive as well. Yeah, I would think, and, and that's what everybody I think would be suggesting at this stage, isn't it, Justin? I mean, you don't want people showing up at the pharmacy uh, to make an appointment uh, because the, we, we still do have social distancing concerns, and, uh, you know, you don't want big long lineups just to book an appointment. That's way too many people in the store, than, and it's a uh, burden to the staff and everything else. So going online is, is probably the preferred option, I would think, for everybody. Absolutely. And, and as you said, we have safety protocols to enforce the number of people in the store per square footage, the mm-hmm. time between um, getting your appointment um, and the next patient and all the sanitation that has to happen uh, in between. So, you know, we've done this. This is we've done COVID testing. Uh, we've had the flu season where we had unprecedented demand. So we're yeah. prepared for it. But to manage that. Uh, demand that's the best way to do it uh, we should remind people too uh, if, and if they're using a comparative when they got their flu shots uh, I mean I was in and out of course I had an appointment I was in and out in, in virtually no time at all uh, but there is a concern here about about after effects and I know that uh, people get the vaccine uh, they do have to wait uh, I guess five or ten minutes or something like that just to make sure that everything is going to be fine uh, and 99.9 percent of the time it is but uh, it's just for people that are allocating their time uh, what kind of 
pressure does that put on the pharmacy itself to have a, an area like that for people uh, will have to stick around for a couple of minutes to make sure that everything is fine, uh, but at the same time ensure that there's social distancing. It's not as if there's a whole lot of extra space in pharmacies. No, but all of the pharmacies that have signed on to do this have a separate space that's dedicated for vaccinations and we'll have an opportunity to have a waiting area where they can observe the, uh, the person who got the vaccination. And there's, there's no inside effects, which are normal, you know, sore arm, uh, oh, sure. things of that nature. Um, and, and what we're looking for is any of those serious uh, adverse events. And we're trained, pharmacists are trained in um, all of the uh, clinical uh, procedures that would need to take place if they're, you know, an un- unlikely event to happen, but if it were to happen, you're, you're certainly in good hands uh, in a pharmacy and, uh, you know, same as you would be at a primary care office uh, for physicians or at the public health unit. So we've considered all of those scenarios and we want to make sure that the stores that do participate in this program will have all of those things in place and be able to operationalize this safely. What's the mindset of your members at this stage? I know that when I've talked to some of the pharmacies around the Ancaster area here, uh, they were pretty excited. Like, when are we going to be able to be part of this? I mean, they, because they're ready, willing, and able because they've been doing the flu vaccine for a while now. So they, they know the protocol. They know what they have to do. It's just a matter of, you know, give us the product and let's get rolling on this. They must be pretty excited. Well, they are. And, and the key is the product. Uh, we need to make sure that we don't uh, onboard pharmacies and not have enough supply because then, you know, the, the public goes in and, and uh, pharmacists will then get inundated and not have an opportunity to be able to provide the vaccination. So it's really important that we um, learn from this pilot because there's uh, certainly elements of managing the bookings, the the interface that pharmacists have to have with the COVAX ON system, which is allowing for the patient consent and reporting documentation of the uh, interaction with the patient. Um, so all of these things are, uh, they're slightly different, although a lot of it is similar to the flu, there are differences. And we have to schedule the follow-up appointments and make sure that um, we do that within the suggested uh, time frame. So all of those things will, I think, lend itself well to a um, successful rollout beyond the pilot. And uh, our goal is to get uh, every pharmacy that wants to participate in every region onboarded when the supply is ready so that we increase access. I'm glad you brought that second shot up. I got an email from somebody last week, and you just tweaked my memory about this. Uh, when you get that shot, and it's, it's going to be happening sooner than later, and as we said just before you joined us, uh, there are even some some uh, general practitioners, uh, family docs, that are going to be giving the vaccine out in Hamilton and a couple of other cities starting this weekend, to that same age demographic. Uh, should you schedule the second shot right then and there, or do you just wait three or four months and then call back? a good question. Uh, I think what we're looking to do is schedule it so that uh, it's planned out um, and, and there's a window to do that within uh, four months um, and or sooner. So that'll largely be driven by follow-up uh, if there's vaccine that comes in early and be managed uh, that way. But we want to you know try to get all of that scheduled and planned out so that um, we can make sure that we have the vaccine and uh, time available for the, the person. And again, to your point, I know we're just about out of time here, but just to remind listeners that are involved in this in, the, in these jurisdictions, uh, go to the webpage. Don't go to the pharmacy to try to make an appointment. Uh, they're just going to be inundated. The phones are going to be jammed, too. Uh, if it's shoppers, go to the shoppers website, Rexall. I mean, any number of different, you know, the pharmacies, they've all got their web pages up now. And uh, they're they're waiting. But again, I want to remind our listeners uh, that it's not happening all over the province, okay? It's only a specific number of areas for now. And uh, as uh, as Justin mentioned, it's 
it's because of uh, supply at this stage. Uh, but that is expected. The Premier is going to speak again at 1 o'clock today, and uh, he's expecting that uh, the supply chain is going to be strengthened. So it's, it's Toronto, Windsor, Essex, and Kingston uh, for now with their pharmacies uh, dispensing the vaccine. But uh, hopefully, I guess, sooner than later, I'd like to think in the next week or two, uh, we can start expanding that, if not to the whole province, at least uh, incrementally, I would think, Justin. Absolutely. And, and that's going to be the plan. And it might be a mix of different vaccines that'll be uh, part of that uh, when J&J supply comes. But at the end of the day, our shared goal is to get every immunizer a part of this program so that we can get people uh, vaccinated quicker uh, and return back to uh, whatever sense of normal uh, post-pandemic uh, we arrive at. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, good to know that the pharmacies are going to be partaking in this, and uh, hopefully this is going to expand, as we just mentioned. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program to add some clarity to this, Justin. Thanks so much. Uh, stay well, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Take care. Justin Baseman, of course, who is the uh, CEO for the Ontario Pharmacists Association. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.